the text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 29. If you want to turn to 1 Samuel 29. To frame this text, Sam asked me to read Psalm 23. So I'll be reading Psalm 23 as you turn to 1 Samuel 29. This is God's Word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look to your word and we look to this account in David's life and we look at your faithfulness, Lord, I pray that you would help our faith grow, that we would cling to you and trust you in ways that we may be tempted not to. Lord, I pray, help us. Lord, to see Your mercy. See that it's greater than all of our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you who know me, uh, you know that I'm an archer. A lot of my illustrations seem to come uh, from this hobby that I enjoy. And anyone who has ever been an archer, uh, can relate to what I'm about to tell you. And I think it'll help set up uh, this text. Uh, when a person shoots a lot of arrows, uh, I used to shoot leagues in archery, and to shoot around is 60 arrows. So you stand 20 yards away, you have your target there, and you kind of have your top score uh, circles this big, and that's a five-pointer, and then you have one about this big. If your arrow goes inside that, it's worth four points, three points. It kind of goes out. Well, anyone who's shot for any significant time, you can shoot most of your arrows in the smallest target. Out of 60 arrows, you might have uh, five or six that, get outside of that inside circle. But maybe like one out of maybe 500 shots just goes absolutely crazy. It's what I would call like the double clutch shot. You, you draw back, there's release on the bow where there's actually like 70 pounds there, but it gets lighter. And the key to shooting well, is once you're here, you have to relax. 
you have to kind of totally relax and as slow as you can pull the trigger. Well, maybe one out of 500 arrows, what happens is, is you're all relaxed and you go to pull the trigger, but it doesn't quite pull and so you kind of let off and your arrow just goes crazy. Like, might even miss the whole target. Well, this doesn't happen very often at all. And being a bow hunter for like 12 years, a, a bow hunter is always dreaming about, okay, I got to be clutch when the big buck comes in. Well, about four years ago, you know, I had never had a really big buck come in. Uh, but one of my buddies came from Minnesota. We had spotted a buck we both knew was bigger than anything we'd ever seen. And we spent three days trying to encounter him up close. Finally, this deer was coming in, like 50 yards away, he's coming. And, and so I'm telling myself, you have got to make this count. This is like once in every 10 years opportunity, and it's all going to come down to this. And so I'm going through everything in my head to do everything right does anyone want to guess what happened? <laughs> I, I pulled a double clutch <laughs> shot and shot like two feet over the deer's back. This is bad, bad, bad. It's a bad day. But the deer kind of looks around, doesn't seem to pay attention, and comes walking right at me. And I grab another arrow, and I shoot him, and he dies. And I learn an important lesson. You see, the comments I would get on YouTube from this video is, it's better to be lucky than good. We, we've all heard this statement before. It's better to be lucky than good. Well, I don't believe in luck. So I believe it's better to be blessed by God and be shown grace than have my own pride be built up about how well I made the shot or whatever. Well, this text before us today, when you get to the end of this, your heart's saying it's better to have a merciful God than to try to be good enough on your own. It's just so well clearly seen uh, in this text as we look at David's life. Now, if you have your Bibles and you're in chapter 29, I want you to just turn to chapter 27 real quick uh, to get us back into the context of the story. If you remember, for the last 10 chapters, David has been on the run from King Saul. Uh, he, he's been trying to kill David. And David kind of gets to the end of his rope. He's valiantly trusted God by faith through all these trials, but he gets to chapter 27. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. Or look at what David says in his heart. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. 
Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David gets to the end of his rope and he says, I'm going to die. I'm not always going to be delivered. Saul's going to get me. What I have to do is I have to leave Israel, go into the land of the Philistines, and seek refuge there. And uh, if you remember from last week, I said chapter 28 and chapter 29 were out of order. Chapter 28 actually happens after chapter 29. So if you're going to line chapter 27 up in chapter 29, it's just kind of one flow. And uh, go to chapter 28 and look at the first couple verses here. So David flees to the land of the Philistines and, and uh, Achish the king sends him uh, to the southern part of the kingdom to a city called Ziklag. And while David was there, he was out of view of Achish. So he went to the king of the Philistines. He says, I want to be your servant. Can I stay here? He says, uh, sure, you can go down to Ziklag. So David's there and he's making raids against Israel's enemies. He's making raids. He's actually helping Israel. And when he makes these raids, he kills man, woman, and child. He doesn't leave anyone alive because he doesn't want any word getting back to Achish about what he's actually doing. He's getting rich off making these raids and he's telling Achish he's lying. He, he, he says, I'm making raids against the Negev of Judah. And Achish is like, this is perfect. There, Saul's best soldier is now a mercenary for me. He's fighting on my behalf. People in Israel have to hate David. And we find out that he's been there for a year and four months doing this, lying to Achish, in a sense living outside of trusting in God, kind of trusting in his own scheme uh, in Ziklag. And then right at the beginning of chapter 28, here's what we read. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Well, David's scheme seems to be coming to an end. It seems like now he's in an impossible situation because now he's the bodyguard of Achish and Achish wants to go attack Israel like the ultimate battle, not a border skirmish. This is to wipe them out. And so the predicament David's in, it seems like an impossible predicament to get out of, is does he go and fight with the Philistines and destroy God's chosen people? And if he doesn't, Achish is going to find out he's been lying to him all the time and then he's not really with Achish and the Philistines would kill him and his 600 men easily. So it seems like this impossible scenario. 
after a year and four months, in a sense, worrying, not trusting God, it culminates to this major problem. And that's what brings us to chapter 29 in our text. So let's look and see what happens. Look at verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring of Jezreel. So Israel isn't yet to Mount Gilboa. That's where we were in chapter 28. And the Philistines aren't all the way up to Shunem. And that's how we know we're back in time from chapter 28. So the Israelites are in the valley at the base of Gilboa, and the Philistines are moving up uh, towards Shunem where this battle is going to take place. And then in verse 2 it says, As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by the hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear of Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? So you can imagine the situation. The king, the president of, of the Philistines, Achish, is hanging out with David. They're on their way to fight the Hebrews. And the commanders uh, of the Philistine army are furious. Are you kidding me? Are we really taking these Hebrews with us into battle with Israel? This does not seem like a good political move. You can just imagine the talk going on between them. And so as they say, what are these Hebrews doing here? Here's what Achish says. Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he's deserted to me, I found no fault in, to, in him to this day. He's saying, you can trust David. He's left them for a year and four months. He's been my servant this whole time. What are you worried about? But verse 4 says, the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, that is Achish, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. That's Ziklag. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? That's to Saul. Would it not be with the heads of the men here? So they're saying, isn't this a perfect opportunity for David to get back in the good graces with Saul? In the midst of this battle, all of a sudden David starts killing the Philistines. This is what they're worried about. And then they say, verse 5, I love this, is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. This is the second time where the Philistine people know the music that's played in Israel. And one of their favorite songs is Saul has slayed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they're saying, Achish, just listen to their music. 
this is not a good idea that we take David with us into this battle. So then verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out, out, out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord, the Lord's do not approve of you. So now go back and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So as political pressure rises, Achish says, okay, David, I know you've been honest with me. From, from the very moment I met you, I know that your integrity is strong, which for us as readers, we're just going, oh my, oh my. And so he says, sorry, I trust you, but they don't. So you're going to have to go back. So David's way of escape is now miraculously in view. But David can't screw it up here. He's got to play it cool. So he says this in verse 8, And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I may not go down and fight against the enemies of the Lord, the King? So David has to play cool and pretend like, oh man, I really wanted to go into battle with you where actually, unbelievably, David is being spared from this uh, horrible predicament. And then Achish says this in verse 9. I mean, just it's just dripping with irony. Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> David, you're as blameless as an angel of God. It just makes you want to puke <laughs> when you read it. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, Rise early in the morning and the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as, you, as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So what can we learn from this account? Another amazing escape that David has. What can, what can we learn from this? Well, I want to give you three things. And the first one is this. Be assured that even your enemies are God's servants for your good. Let me say that again. Be assured that even your enemies are God's servant for your good. Uh, as I was reading about this this week, uh, someone wrote about uh, uh, this poor lady that was alone and had no food, and I just have to relay the story to you. I chuckled out loud. So there was this old lady. She didn't have money for food. Uh, she was a Christian. She was all alone, 
And one day she was praying out loud and she was asking God to give her her daily bread. And her agnostic neighbor overheard the prayer. And he was like a little bit of an evil neighbor. So he thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy two loaves of bread. And I'm going to go put it on her front doorstep. So he goes and does this. And as the woman finds the bread, she begins to praise the Lord for how He answers prayers. And that's just what he was waiting for. And he pops around the corner and he says, the Lord didn't give you that bread. And she says, He surely did. I prayed for it and the Lord brought me this bread. And then He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I heard you pray. I went and bought the bread and put it on the doorstep. But she argued with Him. No, the Lord brought me this bread even though He used the devil to do it. And this is what God does. If you read all through 1 Samuel, God is consistently using the enemies of Israel, the enemies of David, to actually bring about their salvation. Look at verse 4. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you've received assigned him. That is the best case scenario ever. And God used the ideas of the Philistine commanders to save him. And it wasn't the first time. You remember in chapter 14 when Jonathan took his armor bearer and he's like, let's go. Come with me. Let's see if the Lord will give him into their hands. What ends up happening? the Philistines start killing each other. The whole army of the Philistines get confused and they start attacking each other. And then in chapter 19, this is maybe one of the most comical ones. Saul's after David and he sends messengers to go kill him. And as the messengers enter Ramah where, where David and Samuel are, Rather than kill him, they begin prophesying that David's going to be king. Three times this happens. Saul gets so furious, he says, fine, I'm going to come get the job done. And when Saul enters town, what does he start doing? He strips himself from his royal robes. He strips himself naked and begins prophesying. And once again, God is using the enemies of David to proclaim his kingship. Remember when Saul, or David had Saul trapped in a cave? The end of that passage, what's, what's Saul doing? David, surely you'll be king. David's enemy continually says, surely you're going to be king. Christian, your enemies are working to against you for your good. That's what the Bible teaches. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you this. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. This might be... It's definitely top five favorite texts in all of Scripture for me. 
Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31. Listen to Paul's logic. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So think of David. If God's for David, who can be against him? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His reasoning is this. If God did the hardest thing for you, gave the most valuable thing He has, His own Son, then how isn't He going to take care of you in all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now get this. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You see that? In the midst of that horrible list of suffering, He says, no, in all those things, God's making you conquerors through Christ Jesus. You see, the worst thing, your worst enemy, your worst day, begins to be your servant when you come to Christ. Who can be against us if God is for us? That's why Paul was able to say in 2 Corinthians 1, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction we experienced in Asia. Why would you want to brag about your affliction? For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we, we had received the sentence of death. But, now get this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see that? He says the reason why we despaired was God wanted to make us rely on Him rather than ourselves. So it's no wonder when David writes Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms, this is what he writes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Which is interesting because normally he's laying down in a desert. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me in your rod and your staff. They comfort me. But look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Not only does God prepare a table for David in the presence of his enemies, God has the enemies prepare this table for David in this circumstance. 
If God is for you, who can be against you? Now get this, church. If our enemies are servants for our good, you want to know what this does? This actually frees us up to love our enemies. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your brothers and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can you do that? You can only do that when you realize your only enemy is your sin and your lack of looking to Christ and His grace and His mercy for you. It frees us up to be Christ-like. The second thing I think we learned from this text is that we must be assured that God's mercy is greater than all your sin. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. David, after a year and four months of working according to his own flesh, of lying through his teeth to Achish, and this, and, and this chapter just makes us uncomfortable as Achish says, oh, you're as blameless as an angel of God. What should happen here? God should say, David, you got yourself into this mess. This is because of your lack of faith. Now take your whooping. This is what you deserve. You deserve to be in this circumstance. But what does God do? God delivers him. This is the story of the whole Testament. God doesn't make a covenant with good people. People continually shock us in their sinfulness, and God's mercy continues to overcome their great sin. I mean, in our men's group, as we're reading through Genesis, you know, you get to these Abimelech characters. And when Abraham's coming and he's worried that Abimelech's going to steal Sarah and, and take her and kill him, even though God's promised Abraham he's going to have so many children. So that scenario can't happen. Abraham doesn't act in faith. He lies, says Sarah's uh, my sister. And then, you want to know what's amazing? As soon as that scenario plays out, here's what Abraham gets in result of that. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brothers a thousand pieces of silver, a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So in the midst of Abraham's colossal lack of faith and sin, here, here's a bunch of riches become, here's land, and reading it, it's just like, no, this can't happen. A few chapters later, you have uh, Isaac and Rebekah and another Abimelech and a same sort of scenario. And here's what we read there. As soon as he gets done lying and doing the same thing Abraham did, 
And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped that same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And you say, why in the world? I mean, obviously this can't be happening this way. But all throughout the Bible, God's saying, it's not because you were good enough. It's because of my mercy. God's mercy is greater than all your sin. If you're like me, you're tempted to think you're on your last rung. Up to this point, somehow God has tolerated you in your sin. But you're just about to out-sin the mercy of God. I know you're tempted to think that. I'm tempted to think that. That He cannot continue to put up with me. But I'm here to tell you the good news that this Bible is full of this story that we have before us today. From beginning to end, God's mercy overcoming man's sin. And the temptation is going to be that you'll be tempted to despair thinking, surely God can't forgive my sin. Every one of you comes in here and thinks, if only I could get this part of my life together, then God would be happy with me. What you need to know is, Christ's forgiveness, or His death, His payment, is good enough for whatever sin you bring in here. And He's patient. He's extremely tenacious in His patience and His mercy. Just this morning, here's what C.J. Mahaney wrote uh, in his Twitter account. And, and I just thought, amen. He says, it's the pastor's joy and job in preaching to assure those that he serves are to assure those that he serves that God's love in Christ is greater than all their sin. The pastor's job is to assure sinners that his mercy is greater than all their sin. To which I said, Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that exclamation point on what you already showed me in your text. So many examples of God's grace for us. So it's no wonder. You want to know how Psalm 23 ends? Uh, let me read it for you here if I can find it. Psalm 23, verse 6. Here's how it ends. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew this better than anyone. <laughs> Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. David tested God's goodness and His mercy. His sins with Bathsheba, his this example in a year and four months in the Philistine territory. So I wonder this morning how you're tempted to doubt God's mercy. My prayer is you leave here knowing that His mercy and His grace 
is greater than all your sin. Third thing I think we can learn from this text is be assured that though weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. Now this one you might not see quite so clearly, but I think it's there. If you look at chapter 28, I want you to look at verse 25. You remember in chapter 28, Saul was seeking out a medium like a witch uh, so he could raise Samuel from the dead and get a word from Samuel. And Samuel basically tells him, tomorrow you're going to die because you've rejected God's Word. And that sad account in chapter 28, 1 Samuel 28, verse 25, here's what we read. She convinces him to eat. And, and so it says, And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. So just picture this scenario. Saul is not even hungry. They finally convince him to eat. He knows he's going to die the next day apart from the Lord. And he eats this meal that's a meal for a king. And he went there with hopes of mercy. And he left in the night, in the dark, walking home, walking towards his death. His impending death. But the very next chapter, another sinful man, David. Look, look, look how this text ends in chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. Achish says to him, Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord who came with you and start early in the morning. You see that? And depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the, the Philistines went up to Jezreel. One sinner leaves in the night hopeless. The next one leaves in the morning with the light, escaping from sure death. You have them side by side. And we know David also wrote Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, as a Christian, we're never ultimately left in despair. Yes, we suffer, but we suffer as those who have hope. Yes, we will die, but though we die, yet shall we live. Uh, our hope when we trust Christ is that there's joy at the end of the road. So I want to sum up this uh, this part by reminding you uh, of Christ. How does Christ encompass all three of these points we can learn from this text? So let's ask the first question. How can you know 
that even your enemies will work together for your good. Well, in Acts chapter 4, you don't have to go there, but just listen to this. In verse 27, here's what we read. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So Jesus had enemies gathering against Him, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So there's all of His enemies gathering against Him to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Jesus, when His enemies came around Him, they came around Him according to God's perfect plan to die on the cross and purchase us for our salvation so that we can also know that any of our enemies will serve us for our good. How can we know that God's mercy is greater than all your sin? How can you know that? Well, because when Jesus came, He said that He came to die, to give His life as a ransom for many. And then when He died, here's what Acts 2.23 says in 24. It's similar to Acts 4. Listen to this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. The reason why you know that His grace is greater than all your sin is because He rose from the dead. That was the stamp. That was like Jesus made the promise He was going to do it. But it's like when you purchase something online, you don't know you purchased it until you get your confirmation receipt. When Jesus raised from the dead, it was His confirmation that He was the Son of God. He did fulfill what He came to do, which is pay the price for all your sins. How can you know that joy will come in the morning? Well, all throughout Jesus' ministry, especially seen in the Gospel of John, I just, want, I just want you to hear these verses. John the Baptist said this, John 3.29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So everybody wants the bride. When the bride comes, joy comes. So the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, now that Jesus is here, my joy is now complete. It can't get any fuller than being with the bridegroom. The bridegroom has the bride. The bridegroom's coming for the bride. And now my joy has been completed in Jesus Christ. And then in, in uh, uh, John chapter 16, verse 24, here's what Jesus says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He says, you come to me. 
You come to Me with your needs. You come to Me for life. You come to Me when you thirst inside so that your joy can be complete. And then in his, then the very next chapter in the high priestly prayer, in verse 13, John 17.13, he says this, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Here's the deal. If you have Jesus Christ, you have joy. You no longer have to chase down. Now, Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trials, troubles, and tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In the midst of your suffering down here, in the midst of your pain, joy is right there with you. Jesus prayed, Father, I don't pray You take them out of this world, but that You keep them from the evil one. You see, through your struggles in Christ, there is joy. There may be weeping in the night, but joy is coming in the morning. I want to leave you with these words from Revelation 22. This isn't me speaking. This is Jesus. I'm reading this. So, in thinking about David leaving in the morning with light, here's what Jesus says of Himself. I am the root and the descendant of David. I'm the king that's going to rule forever. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be the, uh, the son of David. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And then here's what he says. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so Jesus Christ is saying to you, sinner, come to Me. You don't have to pay. You come drink here and your thirst will be quenched. I've paid for your sin. Come. The Spirit says it. Every Christian in here is saying the same thing. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Father, Lord, I thank You for these reminders of Your mercy, of Your grace, for the reminder that when we're in a dark place, there's joy coming in the morning. You have us locked up even in the, our darkest night, we know that somehow this is working for our good, that You're not letting us go. Lord, I just pray that You would help us believe this by faith. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.